There is a, a sense in which the ascension is that crowning moment where Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and he goes before the Father, and he is he is pronounced, we even read in the Old Testament, he's pronounced from the Father as the King of heaven and earth, the fulfillment of the hopes of the Messianic King. And so to really actually stop at the resurrection is to stop the story before it's over. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, oftentimes our attention is drawn to crucial aspects of the work of Christ. Uh, for example, we sometimes think of what Christ did for us on the cross and how essential that is to our understanding of the forgiveness of sins, uh, eternal life, and so much more. Maybe we, we might even start uh, branching out to talk not just about the end of the life of Christ, the passion, but also the whole life of Christ. Perhaps we've wondered before, what, what does the life of Christ, for example, have to do with why Christ ends up at the cross? But even in these type of discussions, we are very, well, we, we just don't do it very often. We don't turn to the end of the story. That is, what happens after the death of Christ? Now, certainly, when Easter comes around uh, once a year, we love to talk about the resurrection. I have always been shocked, though, how few times pastors and even theologians will discuss the resurrection other than that Easter morning service. But worse yet, the ascension. When have we ever talked about the ascension? I must admit that the ascension is one of those aspects of the life of Christ that we not only don't talk about, we neglect, but we actually, well, dare I say, we have no idea what it means, what it's there for, and it, if we're honest with each other, we might even be a bit uncomfortable with it. Well, believe it or not, the ascension of Jesus Christ is not just an afterthought. Uh, it's not just a capstone. Actually, the ascension of Christ is key to understanding what Christ has done and who he is and what he is still doing now on your behalf, not just for you, the individual believer, but for the church. I am so excited to have Patrick Schreiner in here, in the studio, in the flesh, with me, uh, to talk about the Ascension, because Patrick has actually written a little book uh, in a, the Snapshots series for Lexham Press on the Ascension. It's called The Ascension of Christ, Recovering a Neglected doctrine, and I think you will find Patrick's work not just illuminating, but actually, uh, it, it will actually change your perspective, not just on the ascension, but the entire life of Christ, and maybe even open our eyes to, well, the life of Christ that we really haven't discussed in recent years. Patrick, thanks for uh, joining me here uh, in the studio uh, to talk about the ascension of Christ. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Like you mentioned, it seems to be a neglected doctrine, and sometimes I feel like I've said that so much now that it's almost a truism, <laughs> but we were just talking about how, man, you begin to look at the resources, and there's just, there's some stuff out there, but there's not a lot still but, done on the Ascension. That's absolutely right, and I was mentioning how uh, years back, I was doing a lot of reading and writing on the Resurrection, and I felt that way about the Resurrection, mm -hmm. and in recent years, there's been a little bit more work come out on the Resurrection, which has been encouraging. But the ascension, uh, goodness, practically, uh, when you look around at contemporary works, it's just not there. That's right. Some of the older theologians would address it uh, in part because they they love the creed, uh, mm -hmm. the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed, in which all this is mentioned. And so they uh, not only treat uh, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection, but then also the ascension, though it's brief. 
but today we we just don't we just don't see yeah. it. But before we before we jump into because I want I want our listeners to hear you know why what what in the world drove you to uh, a doctrine like the Ascension. But before we do that, uh, I think you do first need to explain uh, why exactly uh, you got your butt kicked in bowling uh, yesterday <laughs> by yours truly, the, the host. Well, we also need to talk about my amazing interpretation of what we're going to do. Um, Matt texted me uh, maybe a week ago or something like that, and he just said something really cryptic like Gladstone Bowl. That's right. And I immediately interpreted it as a football game, an outdoor football game. <laughs> and I was really excited. And I was like, honey, where's my cleats? I need to get my stuff ready. Yeah. And then my wife went up to Matt at church. We go to the same church. And she was like, Patrick's excited to play football today. And Matt, I guess, looked at her like, what is happening? I guess we we're going to Gladstone Bowling. And so yeah. um, I think part of the reason I lost, um, you know, I did get second one time, <laughs> but part of the reason I lost is because my, my game was in football. Like I was thinking yeah. this is going to be a football game. And then last minute, you know, I had to really like psych myself up for the bowling. And uh, I was I was just really prepared to catch a lot of touchdowns. That, that was part of my strategy, <laughs> just completely throw you off. Uh, apparently you thought you were coming for the Super Bowl or something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I thought we did like a Gladstone. <laughs> it's a it's an area here in Kansas City, a Gladstone Bowl, where we like yeah. played in the snow. And like yeah. I was like, this is great. I'm so excited for this. <laughs> and it was pretty cold yesterday and rainy, and I thought, I'm going to be miserable. <laughs> well, considering it's been below zero, um, in fact, uh, I, I would, I, I was, I should, what I should have done is texted you like some random address to a to a field somewhere, and and then just watched you go out there by yourself in your cleats. Yeah. <laughs> I should have, I should have got it when all the Big Lebowski gifts came through the text yeah, messages. That's right. And I just thought you guys Intent. were playing around, and then I read back through, and I was like, oh, this all makes sense now. <laughs> So, uh, so don't trust any of my interpretive moves if, right. if there's cryptic sayings. So. That's right. You know, we, we it, it did make me a little bit suspicious, <laughs> but uh, no, we had so much fun. Um, and uh, you know, it's bowling is one of those those moments that uh, well, not not just anyone can do it, but you, you really have to go with the right mentality, right? I mean, you got You got to get the the jalapeno uh, poppers. poppers. I did do um, that. It didn't help me at all. I did worse after that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some some stomach uh, problems after that point. But um, no, seriously, uh, this uh, this topic of the ascension. You know, if we if we how do we transition from bowling to the ascension? I, I don't. Has <laughs> there's got to be an illustration there somewhere, right? <laughs> For all those pastors out there, there's got to be some the, type of the sermon. last pin is the final doctrine that <laughs> we right. must knock down. That's right. If you don't get a strike, <laughs> this this is already breaking down. Very badly, but um, yeah. So l- let's try. You know, in the history of podcasts, I- I'm sure no one's transitioned from bowling to the ascension, but we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make an attempt here. Um, but it, yes, in all seriousness, when we when we talk about the ascension, well, if we talk about the ascension at all, um, in in the past, the way I've I've heard of it discussed is in a very just passing reference. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not really sure what it means, why yep. it happens, and even when we go back to the gospel accounts, there there's a, even a bit of ambiguity from the disciples as yeah. to what is ha- what exactly is happening. Right. Even the questions like is is now is it is it now the right. time right, for right. the kingdom? Yeah. It's like oh man, they still they're still struggling to understand it. Yeah. Um, but even today, right, that same confusion, that type of ambiguity, for, maybe there's all kinds of other reasons. His his uh, let us just. Well, we just don't talk about it much. Mm-hmm. There's probably some theological consequences. Yeah. I'd love to hear just from you personally, uh, what what kind of opened your eyes to this and led you to to start thinking through the ascension? Yeah, it goes back to when I was born. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it um, it actually began somewhat in my dissertation work at at uh, Southern, and I was using a theory from someone in London who had done a lot of work on the Ascension, but I was actually applying it to Matthew. Mm. And so um, Matthew Sleeman, he's a New Testament scholar. He actually got his PhD in geography, he teaches at Oak Hill. Uh, I think it's Oak Hill in London. And um, he wrote a great book on the Ascension. And so I was using kind of the theory that he was using to help interpret Matthew. And as I read it, I thought, man, the Ascension's a huge deal. And kind yeah. of like we're just talking about, I never yeah. thought about it. But I had to put that on hold because I was working on another project. Yeah. 
And then I was contracted to write a commentary on Acts. Mm. And, you know, it didn't even occur to me, like, now is the time to think more about the Ascension until I started exegeting Acts again. And I just Mm. went through it. And immediately, as you said, you get to the disciples' question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel this time in Acts 1, 6 through 8? And Jesus says, no, not at this time, but you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the text immediately following that is the ascension. And really, in my commentary, I'm trying to give a more theological reading than most commentaries do. And really, what struck me when I first came to Acts is, you know, the ascension is kind of that pivot point for Luke's work Mm. because he includes it at the end of his gospel and he includes it at the beginning of Acts. And it really sets the theological foundation for the mission to the ends of the earth. And this comes from Daniel 7, where uh, the Son of Man is enthroned and he's given a kingdom over all kingdoms that all peoples, all nations, uh, all kingdoms might serve him. And so I was just really floored by the ascension in terms of the foundational nature of the ascension for not only mission, but just kind of Christ's continued presence, his continued work. And I started meditating on that, and I was writing the commentary. And, you know, even though they don't, they do refer in the sermons back to the ascension quite a bit. Yeah. But um, I I just was kind of weaving it kind of through the whole theology of yeah. Acts. And then I preached a sermon on it. Uh, and then I'm, I've been asked every Ascension Sunday after yeah. that to preach a sermon on it, which is great <laughs> and really fun. But um, from that, really, actually from that sermon, the first one I did birthed that book. So I was working uh, in the commentary, okay. preaching a sermon. And I was trying to think of a good outline, and I kind of did the prophet yeah. priest king thing, which yeah. is where this book came from. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I will say this is when uh, when I started reading through it, I am when I saw the the way you structured it, prophet priest and king, that immediately caught my attention, mm-hmm. uh, especially as a theologian, in which those categories are so crucial. They're, they're of course biblical categories, but uh, in theology, prophet priest and king. That uh, threefold office. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think of, for example, of John Calvin's work, yeah, in which Calvin not only mentions this these biblical descriptions, but he actually then starts to structure, yeah, uh, his presentation of the person work of Christ according to the according to each of those. And but but what caught my eye here is it's not just the work of Christ as a whole that we can think in terms of prophet, priest, and king, but specifically aspects of that of that work, including especially the ascension. Yeah. Uh, now, for, for our, our listeners, they may be thinking, okay, uh, I understand, I think, the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I'm not quite sure what's happening here with the ascension. Perhaps before we dig into uh, the ascension, you could just start us off distinguishing, uh, well, maybe just defining what is, what are the two, resurrection mm-hmm. and ascension? Should we distinguish between the two, but also how are they related to, yeah. to each other? Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the reasons why it's actually neglected, because a lot of times, if we even, as you mentioned at the beginning, if we even get to the resurrection, it kind of subsumes the ascension. In other words, and I don't think this is actually all bad, but I but we'll talk about how to distinguish it in just a minute. But when we talk about the resurrection, we're just assuming the victory of Christ, the mm-hmm. vindication of Christ. He has conquered death. And so we get to, in our churches, we get to Easter and we celebrate that. And that kind of seems to be the high point. And really, in the scriptures, there is some, um, Paul talks about the exaltation of Jesus, which he seems to be talking about the resurrection and the ascension. Mm. And so I think sometimes we don't talk about the ascension partially just because we get to the resurrection. We assume that's the victory, that's the end. Um, but as I meditate on this, uh, at the final chapter, I really wanted to put it into conversation with other doctrines. One of the most helpful things to do is to distinguish between doctrines. Mm. And the ascension uh, just most simply refers to how Jesus gets to heaven. He um, spatially leaves the earth. It's a visible public event, and he's still a man. He, it's, he still has his body. Yeah. But that's, that's different than the resurrection because the resurrection shows that Jesus conquers death, mm. but the ascension is not about Jesus so much conquering death. It follows in his conquering death, but it's actually his enthronement ceremony. Mm. It's his coronation to the kingship. Yeah. And so in, in one way, we can speak a lot about the resurrection in terms of the life of Jesus and then the ascension in terms of the reign of Jesus. And now mm. he cannot reign unless he has that life, right? So the two 
are ultimately a singular script. You can't yeah. you can't divorce the two. And you know, I had to even go back to the cross, which we we must do in the ascension. Yeah. I think the ascension pushes us back to the cross because John speaks about the cross as the lifting up of Jesus, right. the gospel of John and the exaltation of Jesus. So all of these are kind of stages in his exaltation. Yeah. But there there is a, a sense in which the ascension is that crowning moment mm. where Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. And he goes before the Father and he is he is pronounced, we even read in the Old Testament, he's pronounced from the Father as the king of heaven and earth, mm. the fulfillment of the hopes of the messianic king. Yeah. And so to really actually stop at the resurrection is to stop the story yeah. before it's over. And I yeah. use an illustration at the very beginning of the book, just in terms of audiobooks that I used to listen to. And one of the weird things about audiobooks is that when you're I listen to them while I'm doing other tasks. Mm. That's why I'm listening to an audiobook, right? So I'm driving or I'm getting ready for the day or something like that. And many times you sh- kind of shut off the car at yeah. a strange point when there's like a clim- almost a climax of the book. And when right. you're sitting down reading it, you almost never would stop there. But no. <laughs> you're, you're home now or you're done with that task. And you're like, oh, this is weird. I, I need to yeah. stop now. And I, I felt like that was a good illustration for we can talk about the death and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. And a lot of times we just kind of stop that story. But really the story is not complete until, yeah. and it's not complete until the end, the consummation. Yeah. Um, but you have to see Jesus as the king over the universe. And that's that's really our gospel message. Yeah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is king. And that doesn't happen without the ascension. Yeah. And so it's a key moment that I just, I mean, really there's so many pieces that we can look into, but I just want to really push people's attention back to it. As you mentioned, the early creeds all have a separate line on the ascension. Yeah. So the early church obviously thought it was important. It was an important event in its own right. Yeah. And you know it's an important event in its own right as well because um, they're narrated as different events in the Gospels. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the famous one that I like to go to is in, in at the end of John, Mary clings to Jesus and Jesus says, don't cling to me in John 20 because I still haven't ascended to the Father. In other words, there's another event that needs to happen. So while we must unite the two in terms of our theology, because mm-hmm. they're both part of the victory of Christ, we also need to distinguish between them. Very helpful. And, you know, you've been talking a lot about uh, kingship, mm-hmm. of course, and, uh, you know, prophet, priest, and king, all three of these are connected to the ascension. I like how you just put it a minute ago that uh, really the the story of who this king is and what he has accomplished in his kingdom is we, we're, we're stopping the story short mm-hmm. if if we we suddenly just stop with the cross or the resurrection and and, and don't finish to and see this through to understand well well who is this king and what is he now going to do right. which raises another question uh, and, and this is really where I want to go with our time together. Uh, we could certainly focus on prophet, priest, and king, uh, but let's take the, the priest in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an important one. They all are important, but let's focus on priests for a second. When we go back to the Old Testament, we certainly see uh, the priesthood as a major component of the life of Israel, the, the, the way that even the covenant takes form, the way it's shaped. And certainly when we get to the New Testament, I mean, you think of a, a letter like Hebrews, yeah. priesthood plays uh, such a central role there in understanding um, not just what Jesus has accomplished, but who he is. Now, before we get to maybe a, a book like Hebrews, maybe we could back up and Where I want to go with this is where you go is ultimately priesthood is actually going to define the ascension in a specific way. And, uh, you know, to our listeners, uh, if you're wondering, well, you know, what does this have to do with, say, the benefits, the riches of salvation that Christ Mm -hmm. has accomplished? Well, we'll get there. There's actually a whole lot of benefits that come from priesthood. In, f- with the resurrected Christ ascended mm-hmm. that uh, are going to have a lot to do with, with your Christian living. Uh, but before we get there, maybe we could back up and just talk first about how how is priesthood understood in the Old Testament, and how does that then set us up for what it means 
to call Christ a priest. Yeah. Certainly he's called a king. Right. But what does it mean when the, the gospel writers and the New Testament writers then identify Christ as not just a priest, but the high priest? Yeah. Yeah. So what I was trying to do in this book is to really emphasize that Christ continues to act even after his ascension. And so yeah. we can look at the moment of the ascension, and, and that's really important. But the moment of the ascension, I think, brings Jesus into a new, um, a, a new vocation in some sense, we mm. could say, as the heavenly king, priest, and prophet. So I would argue he was an earthly priest, prophet, king, but that there's a distinction in terms of his heavenly mm. nature and so I'm trying to get to the continued work of Christ. And so with each prophet, priest, and king, I'm trying to say, so, so what is Jesus doing now? It, we like to talk about what Jesus did and what he will do. Yeah. But do we have a Christology that includes his action in the present? Yes. He's, we don't believe in a deistic Jesus Christ who just kind of leaves things yeah. to, to go yeah. or, or a triune God, right? We, we believe they're still acting. So just to back up, the reason why I looked at the kind of prophet, priest, and king is because I, it gave me categories, and I think helpful theological categories, mm -hmm. to begin to actually drill down on, so what is Jesus doing yeah. <laughs> in the heavens? Yeah. How is he helping us? And so, um, really, some of that theology for each of these categories, most of it is you have to go to the Old Testament. We have mm -hmm a two-part canon here that comes together, a yeah. one unified voice from God. And so some of that theology, yes, comes from Hebrews. I mean, we're going to talk about Hebrews a lot yeah. in a second here. But you have to first go back to the Old Testament and think about what happened in the Old Testament. And with each of these offices, I started to meditate on, is there an ascension story connected to a prophet, connected to a priest, and connected to a king? Mm. And what I immediately thought of with the priesthood is, the priesthood is built off that idea of Moses going up Mount Sinai. I mean, even begins before then when Moses mm. is at the burning bush. I mean, when that bush does not is not consumed, I, I think we immediately need to think forward to Pentecost yeah. uh, in terms of the non-consuming fire, right? Mm. And then, but you also have in, in Exodus 24 that Moses ascends up Mount Sinai, and what does he meet there? Well, there's a glory cloud and there's fire. And he says, yeah. no one else can go. And, and Moses is a Levite. And, yeah. you know, it's, it, the Levites become the priests. And so the model of this priesthood is that you go up and you go into the tabernacle or the temple, depending on what area you live in, yeah. and you meet with God. And according to Hebrews 5.1, I think this is a good, good way to kind of define what a priest does. It's an act of service, mm. and so priests are chosen from among humanity. They act on behalf of humanity, and then they present or offer gifts and sacrifices to God. Yeah. And so we have this picture in the Old Testament of what a priest does. A priest goes to meet with Yahweh, mm. and the priest acts on behalf of humanity because they offer sacrifices. They... Um, atone in that sense for yeah. the sins of the people, and then they come out and they bless the people with the presence of God as well. And so you have the high priest who's the only one who's able to enter the Holy of Holies, yeah. and you have the Levitical priesthood system, yeah. and they are the ones that really go before the Father and meet with the Father on behalf of the nation. And that becomes really important as you get to Jesus, because Jesus is now our new high priest who has ascended, according to, the Hebrew, according to Hebrews, to the true temple mm. and is now interceding and presenting his blood, offering his yeah. blood as uh, are the representative of God's people. And so he's representing us in the heavens. And so uh, I think it's very important to think back to that Moses episode and think yeah. about him ascending yeah. to, to the Father in some sense on Mount Sinai, a picture of that, but it's a picture, right? This is typology, right? It's a, it's a smaller picture of what ultimately was to come in Jesus Christ. And it's not just Moses, is it? Like, it, we could go to David. That's right. For example. Yep. Um, I, I mean, Moses is just a, a very conspicuous picture of, of exactly what you're talking about, this ascent into the very presence of God. Isn't it interesting when we come to David and you think, well, there's many places we could go, right? But uh, Psalm, the mm -hmm. Psalms, uh, Psalm 24, for yes. example, mm -hmm. we 
our, our natural default instinct uh, with David is to think of his kingship. Yep. And that's a right instinct for good reasons. But uh, at the same time, there seems to be uh, some indications, both in the life of David and in uh, a psalm like Psalm 24, that we should also think of David as a priest. Maybe we could call him a priest king or a king right. priest. Yeah. Uh, you think, for example, of uh, verse 3 of Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in the holy place? Mm-hmm. What is happening here? Because if you continue to read this psalm, David seems to be, if we're thinking of David in this priestly office, he seems to be very concerned with cleanliness. Yeah. Maybe you could elaborate and and give us some some context for Psalm 24. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting when you begin to think about it is at the beginning of the Bible, it seems that this prophet, priest, and king— vocation is combined. And I'd love to trace this out. Maybe you know more theological works that have actually already done this. But it seems to also be split as the story continues. But then you get kind of hints throughout the story that it's going to be combined again. And so Mm -hmm. you have this kingship motif and this priesthood motif that is, you know, you have Solomon and some of the kings who are doing things that priests are supposed to do and they get condemned for it. Yeah. Now, if you read those stories carefully, though, some of it is the way that they're doing these things. Mm. And David seems to be this picture, which totally makes sense because he's this messianic figure, seems to be this figure that actually, in a unique way, combines this priesthood and kingly theme. So he's with the ark a lot and and dancing with the ark. And you've got all these (laughs) stories that you're kind of like, what's going on here? And I think that's actually pointing us into the big picture in terms of these these offices, these vocations yeah. will be united in Jesus Christ. And actually yeah. that split was re, uh, a result maybe of, we could even say, the fall or something like that. Mm. Um, you even think back to Exodus 19, you are a kingdom of priests. Then, But then there's just the Levites who are priests. But, I mean, going back to Psalm 24 when he says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's pointing to this idea of the only way to approach God is with cleanliness, and that blood from the sacrifices must cleanse them. And I think David is both pointing to the righteousness that we are supposed to embody in our own lives, but in the larger storyline, the scriptures, he's pointing out that that's really not possible (laughs) without an ultimate sacrifice, which Mm. should lead you immediately to Hebrews and start thinking, wait. These priests had to go in again and again, and they themselves were stained with sin, and they had to sacrifice animals, and they died. And and this thing continued and continued, and Hebrews says that's a sign that there was more to come. And the author of Hebrews says we have this priest who never, never will die and who had one sacrifice. And so, therefore, you can approach the throne with confidence because— his blood covers you, and you're ultimately clean. Mm. And so these, all these Old Testament texts are actually both encouraging uh, kind of Israel to follow the Torah, yeah. but also pointing out, as the law always does, yeah. that they can't accomplish it. Yeah. And so it's pointing forward to this priest who will. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a striking image because it's not, uh, it's not just— uh, you know, any particular priest, even David himself seems to to have this, this same anticipation, mm-hmm. the same longing. We could even go back to Moses. Uh, Mo, when, when we look at the life of Moses, Moses seems to have this typological anticipation as well. But, but since you've mentioned Hebrews and the high priestly office of Christ, uh, the way that he presents himself— uh, not just as the priest, but also as the sacrifice. Connect the dots here f- for us. How does how does then Christ, as our high priest, as the one who mediates, uh, intercedes? Uh, we think you know Hebrews goes to the cross, for mm-hmm. example, to talk about the blood, this blood of the new covenant. But you make the point that again, that's not the end of the story. Right. Uh, the intercession that Christ takes upon himself on our behalf, this doesn't just happen at the cross, but it's expanded, it's enlarged, it continues even into uh, his ascended 
state. Yeah. So uh, that now I'm guessing, you know, for for a lot of Christians, pastors, uh, maybe scholars as well, they're not used to thinking to that extent. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're used to maybe thinking of the cross, uh, but but the ascension in terms of a an extended intercession. Yeah. How do we make sense of that in terms yeah. of priesthood in particular? For sure. Yeah. It, so a lot of Hebrews scholars, David Moffat, Bobby Jameson, are doing a lot of good work on this actually. And they're pointing out, and I found this really helpful in thinking about the ascension, is that we have to think of Jesus' sacrifice in some sense and push it towards the ascension as well. Mm. Because what would a priest do as he came before the Father, Yahweh, in the tabernacle and the temple, he would be covered in blood. Yeah. <laughs> because blood, if you just watch the look at the rituals in Leviticus, blood yeah. is just splat, spattered all over. It's yes. a covering for them. Yeah. And there's blood on the curtains and on the altar and the everywhere. Mercy seat. There, there's, and they're sprinkling it on the people at That's one right. point. That's right. And so it's, it's a very bloody ritual. Yeah. Now, if Jesus is continuing in that office, then you want to— Think about those those details according to the scriptures, according to Hebrews, are really important. Yeah. At one point, he's like, I really want to talk more about this, but you guys aren't ready. You're not mature enough. <laughs> so he's saying these details are really important. And what you find is that when you think about Jesus' sacrifice, mm-hmm. if he's the priest, he's entering the true temple, yeah. and he's presenting his blood before the Father in the true temple. Yeah. And so there's a few texts that you can even see this more explicitly. So one of them is Hebrews 9, verse 12. It says, He entered the most holy place once for all time. Mm. He only had to go there once. Not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So just that very physical um, picture is important to think about in terms of when Jesus ascended, he ascended by his own blood. And I don't think we want to just think like, oh, the father was looking on his blood on the cross, but yeah. there's a sense in which he can he brings his scars and his blood yeah. up there as the yeah. true priest mm. and presents that as the sacrifice. Now, we're getting into, there's some debate in terms of how far you want to extend the sacrifice into <laughs> the ascension. I think it's better to say that he presents his blood rather than he like offers his blood because... You also get in Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament that there's one offering, right. and that seems to be tied to the cross. And so we need to be um, careful, and you can hear I'm, I'm wrestling in my own mind with it. We yep. need to be careful with how we speak about this and even the language on the cross. It is finished on the cross. Mm. But we still have to go back to the idea of this is a singular script, and so that yep. the, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension all have to be combined and united. And I find that really helpful to think of kind of the bloody priest coming up before the Father and yeah. presenting his blood. And it's by that blood that the Father looks at the Son and says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Mm. You are the representative of all my people. And then what does Jesus do? Well, because of that blood, he can intercede for the people. Okay. It's, and it's not, it's, not his, it's not the blood because, according to Hebrews, because he sinned, right? Yeah. It's the sins yeah. of his people. Yeah. That's what's so unique about Jesus. He, he never sinned. And the priests, they did sin. Mm. And so he is unique priest and that he is completely, and this is where federal headship is important, right? Yes. He's completely standing in the place of his people yeah. and saying, this is the sacrifice for them. And therefore, after that, what, is he can, what can he do? And what can a priest do? It, they don't just go into the temple so they can say, hey, look, here's a ton of blood. Isn't this great? No, it's for intercession. So they can intercede for the people so okay. that there can be atonement oneness made, and then he can bless the people in light of that. And yeah. so we want to we think about Jesus in terms of his person, where he goes, but then his sacrifice, intercession, and blessing that he gives to his people. Mm. You know, when you think about a, a text like Hebrews 8 or Hebrews 9, he, Hebrews 8, 2, for example, where it talks about um, the true tent. Yes. Uh, Hebrews 9, 11, the more perfect tent. Yeah. There seems to be this emphasis uh, in Hebrews that, well, first of all, I mean, let's just note the obvious. It's using this Old Testament language of tabernacle and temple, but it's 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 actually lifting this vocabulary into the heavenlies. Yeah, um, 
And it does this with Christ as well, uh, in which he is, as the priest, he is entering into a more perfect tent. Mm -hmm. And of course, he is offering a more perfect sacrifice, and he is the perfect high priest. Yeah. This, I mean, this brings us right back to Psalm 24. Yes. Uh, this this language, this concept of cleanliness, of even perfection, to use the words of Hebrews. Now, we've been talking about uh, the way that the sacrifice connects to uh, the perfect high priest, but, but perhaps we could um, look at this from another angle as well and talk about the incarnation. Yeah. And you actually, uh, I was really uh, excited to see so much said about the incarnation because it's not just that uh, Christ is offering this perfect sacrifice, but he is able to do so as the God-man. That's right. And so when we come to a book like Hebrews, I think you have a, a great point to make when you say, yes, now in his ascended state, he is interceding for us. Why is it that he can do that? Well, it's this all assumes his incarnation, but his incarnation is not, and, and this is where I think we get ourselves in trouble, is we, we sometimes think of the incarnation as something that uh, happened in the past, it's done, it's over mm-hmm. with, put it away, mm-hmm. close mm-hmm. the box. Yep. But actually, he is res- he's physically resurrected, yeah. um, which is crucial to recognize, mm-hmm. but he also a sense yep. as as the god man true yeah. true god and true man mm-hmm. i would love to hear from you for for maybe just a second i know this is such a huge topic but when we talk about christ in his resurrected and ascended state interceding for us as high priest you also make the point that well as he does so he is actually uh he is actually the embodiment of of our true humanity and and what it when you think of you know new creation language what it will one day become yeah now how, how maybe connect this for us how does how exactly do we understand okay christ ascended into the heavens he's making intercession for us as mm-hmm. as our mediator mm-hmm. as our high priest but he's doing so in his resurrected mm-hmm. body yeah does that say something not only about himself and what he's achieved, but also about the hope that that we should have? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the eschaton. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question, and and one of the things that sometimes when you start thinking about the ascension is you begin to get kind of um, spiritual, <laughs> like you start imagining Jesus is like not what he really is because he went up into the heavens and the heavens to us sounds non-physical, yeah. non-earthly, if we could say. It yeah. isn't earthly in the same sense. But if you think carefully about the priesthood, remember how I said the priest needs to be chosen from humanity. Mm. <laughs> he had to be a human. And to represent humans, he has to still be a human. <laughs> To represent his people, us. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I always like to think about, again, the details of the Old Testament. When the high priest came, he had the 12 jewels on his breastplate yeah. to represent the 12 tribes. Mm. I like to think of Jesus still having the jewels upon his breastplate to represent his all his people. Yeah. And so to affirm the continued humanity of Jesus is actually key. I know I listen I know. to podcasts and some um, systematic theologian teachers, they just present like, Okay, so what is, what is Jesus doing now, and what does he look like? I mean, we don't know exactly what he looks like, but they're just trying to get across. He's still in human form. Now, according yeah. to 1 Corinthians 15, it's the glorified body state, right? Right. But it's really important, and you started this whole conversation with he's in the true tab- tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. Yeah. We like to think, well, the tabernacle and the temple is the earthly thing, and the heavens are completely different. Mm. But it seems, and, and I'm just tipping into a really deep topic right now, and yeah. so we might have to, not have time to get to all this. But it seems that according to Hebrews, that there, the earthly things are just a picture of the heavenly things, and the heavenly things are the real things. Yeah. <laughs> we like to think of it the other way. The heavenly is like this weird ethereal, yeah. doesn't really match, and earthly is like physical. And no, no, they we have it completely reversed. Yeah, 
It's actually the heavenly realities, which are the model for the earthly realities, which totally makes sense when you go to Revelation, that this city, this kingdom, this bride comes down from heaven and actually rests upon the earth to show you it's actually the true model, the true Mm. tent that has come. Mm. And so according to Hebrews, this true tabernacle and this true temple, I think the tabernacle was built off this, I don't know how to put, I mean, we don't want to get too literal, but this model that's actually in heaven. And that's where Jesus goes. And now he's in his uh, ascended and glorified state, which gives us hope that we too might receive those glorified Mm. bodies. So we don't want, my big point here is we don't want to take the ascension and say it's a reverse of the incarnation. It's actually an affirmation of the incarnation, an affirmation that, and and this goes back to Daniel 7, right? Going up with the clouds of heaven is not just um, a kingly idea. We usually think son of man kingly, but the clouds of heaven should make you think priestly as well. And if it's a son of man, the son of man is just a human one. And in Daniel 7, it's all these beasts, which are these other empires, which are trying to claw their way Mm. to the most high. And it's the one who humbles himself, who is the truly human one. These beasts are kind of deformed pictures of creation, right? They're the um, non-kosher, we could put it, right? Beings. And Jesus Christ is the truly human one who has accomplished all, and therefore he's exalted, and he receives his glorified body. In the same way, what do we do? We follow that truly human one in his humiliation, and in his exaltation, mm. which our baptism is honestly just a picture of. We, we die, and then we're raised to life. And when we're raised to life, we're not raised to life in like, it, we, we're not gonna, it's not going to be different than us. We, our physical bodies are still there, mm. but it, they're in their glorified state. And so I think just, I mean, there's so much more we could say, but pressing into that idea that Jesus still has his body and he's in the true tabernacle. Mm. And he, he, like, these are hugely important for us in terms of thinking about the new heavens and the new earth and the affirmation of the physical and not just kind of getting to this spiritualization of yeah. what happened. Yeah, which is the language that's so often used, uh, maybe unintentionally, but uh, in, in our Christian circles today, uh, especially, you know, if you're a pastor out there, I know you've experienced this in which uh, well-meaning churchgoers will will s- s- describe the life to come in such a esoteric way that uh, there there really is no hope for a bodily existence. That's right. Which, as you're saying, uh, completely undermines then what Christ has done, but what He is still doing in terms of His ascended, um, His ascended state. You know, I, w- one of the ways you've put this, which I thought was just so so helpful and profound, uh, at one point you you say he adorned himself with humanity so that he might perfect humanity as our true priest. And then you make the point that Christ, therefore, is the true priest because he is the God-man who represents humanity yeah. as the first fruits. There's that Pauline, Pauline language, right? The first fruits of those who, who will dwell with God forever. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this may be just what an encouragement, right? Uh, because at this point, we're not just looking to the resurrection, but also the ascension uh, to, to understand, oh, this is the first fruits of yeah. what is to come. That's true. And we actually have a current present guarantee of that as Christ now is in the heavens, ascended, and not 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 just as some spirit, but actually as the God man himself. That's right. That's right. And there's a sense in which we're all gonna ascend. Uh you think of First Thessalonians, mm-hmm. there's kind of a mini ascension picture there That's with right. rapture theology. Yeah. Whatever you want to do with that, right? But it, it's very clear that we meet him in the clouds. Mm. And why is it like that? And and that he's going to return with the clouds yeah. of heaven. We're going. That is, we are going to follow him in yeah. his ascension in in a very real sense. Yeah. So yeah. Now you mentioned something earlier, and maybe we can uh, conclude in this direction. And, and this is, I, I think, at this point, uh, it, this really touches down with our Christian life, right? Uh, you mentioned earlier this notion of kingdom, 
Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting in the Old Testament, you see this, but then it, it certainly shines in the New Testament, how kingdom and priesthood start to overlap. Yeah. And sometimes the language is used together so yeah. that uh, it will even describe a kingdom of priests. Mm-hmm. Well, those who have read the New Testament will certainly remember that uh, the New Testament loves to use this language and even apply it to the church. That's right. Uh, it can be so bold to actually say, and you think of Peter, for example, yeah. uh, actually say, you, you are, if you are in Christ, mm-hmm. the resurrected and ascended Christ, then you are part of this kingdom of priests. You too are, are a priest. Right. That is shocking language to use. Um, why does Scripture speak of the church as priests, and what does that have to do with the ascension in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. So in each of these chapters, I wanted to actually transition to the church and how, you know, in one sense, if Jesus Christ is our federal head, then we are continuing the work with him in terms of that prophetic, priestly, and kingly vocation. Yeah. And so, obviously, there's a uniqueness to Jesus in terms of what he did. Mm-hmm. But at least the, the language, as you already pointed out in the scriptures, is that we continue to act as priests upon the earth. So if we're going to just stop on the priesthood theme right now. And I started just meditating upon the imagery that we get in the scriptures for what the church is supposed to do. Think of Romans 12.1 present your bodies as living sacrifices to oh. God. Well, who is the living sacrifice? It's, it's Christ, right? Yeah. And yeah. so that's obviously built off this idea of the ascension, that Christ is this living sacrifice yeah. in the heavens. And then you think of the church's priests on the earth by intercession. Mm. We're supposed to pray for one another, and we're supposed to pray even for the world, those yeah. in high positions, First Timothy, yeah. rulers and governors. And so as, as Christ is interceding for us, we're called to intercede for others, for mm. one another. And so we're, he's kind of the model humanity by which we take our marching orders in terms of what we're to do. And then third, the church, church acts as priests on the earth by instructing and declaring how people can draw near mm. to God. And what do you do? You, you point to Christ. You can only draw near to God through looking to the ascended Christ. And mm. that's what priests did. They instructed people in terms of this is how you can draw near to God. And that's our gospel message. That's what Hebrews talk about. You can, you can approach the throne of grace with confidence if you have an ascended high priest yeah. because he is your representative. And that is your confidence. And not, it's not in your own works. It's not in what you've done. It's not in what, how, how, how great your business is going. It, it's in another one who has acted for you, mm. but that you can spread that message with complete confidence and tell others you can ascend to the Father with Christ. And What's amazing is in the New Testament, in Colossians and Ephesians, it says we're already seated with him in the heavens. (laughs) And it blows your mind. Like, I feel like I'm right here. Yeah. But if we are in him, and this is the mystery of union with Christ, if we are in him, we are with him in the heavens. And that means in in one very real sense, we are with the Father. Mm. And that's Mm. the unity that we have with the Godhead. Yeah. Because we have been brought in, and Christ has brought us in. Yeah, I, I, I love how uh, the, the Trinitarian language is starting to, as it should, right? Whenever we talk about eschatology, uh, it's starting to seep out. Um, and, and, you know, for, for Christians, this is not only about the confidence that we have, but it, as you mentioned, it's in, this is a confidence that is placed in the resurrected and ascended Christ interceding mm-hmm. for you mm-hmm. so that you can draw near. Now, the question then is, okay, well, who are we drawing near to? Well, you uh, I mean, you make uh, mention of this, Ephesians 2.18. Uh, Paul makes the point there, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, you can actually, in Christ Jesus, you mm-hmm. can draw near and have access in one spirit to the Father. Yeah. So this, this, I mean, Paul here, and of course, this is just the beginning of his letter, but uh, in Ephesians 1, but certainly here in Ephesians 2, Paul's Trinitarian language, yeah. it assumes the ascension. And then when he talks about the ascension, it assumes, it assumes the doctrine of the Trinity. It's, yeah. it's beautiful that way. All that to say, though, uh, to our listeners out there, I, I, I would just encourage you uh, to, of course, uh, pick up Patrick's book, The Ascension of Christ. 
uh, but but also uh, spend time uh, as you read it. Spend time working through some of the biblical passages he mentions. Uh, we just mentioned Ephesians two, but but we've also talked about Hebrews. Uh, I would encourage you to go back to the Old Testament and start to see how some of these types in the Old Testament point to the ascension of Christ. And having done that, uh, I, I would bet that your eyes will be opened uh, to the ascension in a way that, uh, well, you you just not taken time to think through it before. And perhaps, perhaps then uh, you will also come to understand not just who Christ is better, but actually who you are in Christ and what future hope you have as as this kingdom of priests. Patrick, it's been so fun. Um I, I will beat you at bowling. Uh, I, I, I know. The next game must be football. <laughs> That's right. Um, bring your bowling ball, though. There you go. And uh, but no, seriously, this yeah. Is Matt bo- came in, you know, with his bowling ball, and he had yeah. his own shoes, <laughs> and he had a really tight shirt on. No, that's all not true. No, no, I, I deny all of this. No, um, I, I had the roller with the three balls in there. You know, it was. I was just it was gonna, amazing. I was just gonna say that there was one moment uh, when that 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 guy walked by with, uh, boy, he had the whole outfit and the the, the suitcase roller. Which the top was see-through, so you could, it was like more of a walking display of all his bowling balls. Yeah. Um, Don't touch these. Yeah, no. you know. But look at them. Who could not covet that, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, no, this has been so fun. I hope we can do it again. And um, I, I do really hope that uh, our listeners will will go and, and, and not just uh, read what you've written on The Ascension, but perhaps go back to their churches even and— um, Yes, go bowling, you know, but but also, also... Hit that final pin. Yeah, hit that final pin and start to think through not just the passion of Christ, not just the resurrection, but even beyond Easter, the ascension as well. And I think that, well, uh, in doing so, pastors, churches, you'll come to understand the Bible as a whole even better. You've been listening to the Credo Podcast. Join us next time uh, for more discussions and conversations about some of the most important Uh, theological topics with some of the most important theologians today. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation a conversation where doctrine matters.